thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, just a quick message before we begin episode 108. The interview you are about to hear was first recorded in mid-January 2021 and aired two months later. Well, we just learned that in early June 2023, our guest on this episode, Mr. Marshall Hanna, passed away less than two months away from his 101st birthday. Our condolences go out to the Hanna family and friends, as well as any past squadron mates. You know, in a moment, you'll hear Boat interviewing Mr. Hanna and having a great time, which is how we like to run our shows. But just know that we are heartbroken and we ache for his passing. Rest in peace, kind sir. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 108. You've seen them in the movies. You've read about them in the history books. Now it's time to hear about them from the heroes that flew them. That's right. It's time to turn back time and enter the world of the Warbird. And we start it all off with the mighty P-38 Lightning. Let's roll it. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, former U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot, Trevor Boswell. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Boat, and let me tell you, I am really excited about this. It has felt like an eternity waiting to get this new series started. And I'll tell you what, I think your patience and mine has been well worth it. Now, these will be a little bit longer than your typical interview, so don't be surprised if we don't get to as many listener questions or normal announcements during these episodes. But come on, you're not here to listen to me flap my gums as it is, are you? But with that being said, there's not much new for me since our last episode, and I'm still heading down to Sun and Fun Air Expo in a few weeks. So please do stop by the NORAD booth if you happen to be heading out that way. And well, unlike Jello now, I'm still heading to training next month. That's right. The airline guys have smiled down upon him and he's being reinstated to his former aircraft and base in LA. So obviously he is pretty pleased with those results, I'm sure. As for the podcast itself, well, we aired a special bonus episode this past week covering how the US military trains to the high-end fight with our friends over at Cubic. It's pretty incredible stuff. And so I would definitely make sure you go and check that out especially if you can uh, get access to our YouTube page and see what that includes, which is pretty fantastic video playback of the features that we use for debriefing sorties. And you definitely won't obviously get that from your audio only format. So uh, please go check that out when you're able. And lastly, uh, we did release our latest newsletter. So if you haven't yet signed up on the uh, fighterpilotpodcast.com, then head on over for all the great content beyond just the episodes and get signed up for that. All right, checking the clock here. I think we do have at least time for one question from the mailbag. So we'll start it off with an email from Chris Woltz. And his question is in regards to doctors and pilots. He asks, can military pilots fly if sick? And if so, what are the protocols? I assume no medications can be used that affect coordination or cause drowsiness. But I also wonder if any medications are given to enhance pilot concentration. And what role do doctors have in determining flying ability? 
Well, Chris, the short answer, because I'm going to fill in with a bunch more information after this, is that much like the civilian world, the individual pilot is typically the one that determines their ability to fly. You know, other than that, there are a few barriers to the flight that we'll talk through here in a second. But uh, on any given day, it's pretty much just the individual pilot that's making the call. But those barriers do include the uh, flight brief itself. So you're going to be in there with the other pilots and WISOs if there are any, and they'll be able to see you. So they may ask the question, you know, if you're sitting over there with a runny nose or really congested, constantly clearing your ears, whatever the case may be, they may just ask, hey, are you feeling all right? And do you think it's a good idea to go fly? But if you're still feeling good and you answer, yeah, I'd like to go, then uh, you move on up to the duty pilot or in the Air Force, we call it the top three or the operations supervisor. And they'll give you you know, the updated weather brief, operations notes, notums, all that good stuff. And they're also looking in pilot's eyes. And that's part of the checklist there for them is to, hey, do they look like they're fit to fly? And they may ask that question as well. And they actually hold the hammer on whether you can or can't go fly. So they can tell you you're not going anywhere. But if you're told not to go fly, it's clearly a big deal. But I think, you know, for the most part, everybody's pretty reasonable when it comes to their own personal health and the risks that are associated with going to fly when you're feeling under the weather, whether it's a lot or a little, you know. And so the majority of the time, it's just a training sortie or something like that. There's really no need to push trying to go fly to the point of potentially injuring yourself, blowing out an eardrum or something if you have really bad sinus congestion, whatever the case may be. So all that being said, mostly the individual pilots are making the call. But when it does come to medications, they are pretty well controlled, and there is a list of approved and not approved medication that you can take. Again, a lot of it is up to the individual, and if you're sitting there taking medication behind the scenes that's not good for you, there's a risk to it because obviously you're in a high-performance aircraft, you're up at different altitudes that you know humans, frankly, just weren't built to be at. And so we need to be asking those questions to the right people. And fortunately, at least for the Air Force, we have flight surgeons attached to each of the units. And so you can call them whenever you need to on or off duty and get the real answer as to you know what is or is not okay to take. And then whether that, if you do take it, is okay to fly with or not. The flight surgeons will give that answer and then you proceed from there. But to the question on you know, enhancing our focus or our concentration during flight, they don't really give us anything specifically to that effect. But they do give us medications that are traditionally called go pills. And those are more in line for keeping you awake during really long flights. And those are the ones, you know, you're crossing the ocean, moving an airplane from, you know, continental United States to Japan or, you know, from the US to Europe or something like that, where you know you're going to be flying for a long, long time. You know, your body gets tired, just does. And so they're going to give you something called a go pill, and they're a very controlled substance. And so you're issued those things before you walk out the door to go fly. And they give you so many pills that should cover the whole length of time that you're going to go fly. And then when you land, they'll ask you once you land whether you took any. And if you did, how did you feel? How many did you take? That kind of thing. And if you didn't or you didn't use all of them, then they'll get those pills back and keep them in a controlled environment in that way because you know they're a medication that we don't want getting out there to random people that have no need for it, that kind of thing. But in those instances, you'll be ground tested on the medication well before you ever take it for the first time and uh, go fly with it. So for me, flying in F-16s, I was in training for the F-16 when I was first issued those things, ground tested them over a long weekend. And then I told them how I felt after the fact, and they put that on your list of approved medications so that when it does come time for that to uh, happen, your flight surgeon knows what you either prefer if you're okay with all of those or which ones are the only ones that work for you. And they'll issue the right one to make sure that we're not giving somebody the wrong type of medication for that situation. So, you know, really it's not a common occurrence by any stretch of the imagination, 
but uh, it is a necessity for those long missions that happen. And, you know, you're talking like a B-2 stealth bomber, those guys, B-52s, those guys, they're flying a long, long time. And especially in the B-2, there's only the two pilots in there. Those guys are taking the same types of medications as well. They go through that same process to make sure they can complete the mission as it's intended. All right. Well, that'll do it for the uh, listener Q&A today. We've got a fairly lengthy interview coming up with uh, today's guests, former Air Force Captain Marshall Hanna. So let's jump into the interview with him. Well, welcome, everybody. This is Boat with the first episode of our new Warbird series here on the podcast. And because I'm running the show, I'm jumping right in with my favorite, the P-38 Lightning. Today, I'm joined by World War II veteran and P-38 pilot himself, U.S. Army Air Force's Captain Marshall Newt Hanna. Sir, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited today. As we uh, kind of talked a little bit before we started recording, I'm, I'm very excited. The P-38, like I said, is my favorite of the uh, World War II fighters. And I'm even more excited because I get to have you here who's actually flown it and, and was able to experience what it was like to do that in combat and has all the stories to back it up. So let's just get right to it. And where are you from and where did you find your love for aviation? Well, I'm an Oklahoma native. I was born here. I spent most of my life in Oklahoma City, my adult life anyway. I moved here when I was about nine years old. And there's an airfield, a municipal airport in Oklahoma City, Will Rogers Municipal Airport. Uh-huh. It was always small, but there was always little light airplanes out there. And I remember it was a several-mile ride for my on my bicycle to go out there, but I just went out there and would just want to look at those airplanes and go through the airport and see them and, and open the door and look at the panel and everything. And one of my friends said, I just wanted to lick the paint off of those airplanes. <laughs> I <liked it> so <laughs> but That's great. I was always fascinated about airplanes. And when I was young, going to school, I always wanted to get into the, Army Air Corps, the minimum requirements was 60 hours of college credit before they would accept you. Well, that meant you had to spend at least two or two and a half years going to college. But uh, anyway, the war came along and uh, Will Rogers Field, it's here in Oklahoma City, had a P-38 Lecon squadron there. Oh, okay, great. And I was just fascinated by them P-38s flying around, you know what I mean, oh, in I this do. area. And I thought, that's the most beautiful airplane in the air that I've ever seen. <laughs> I thought, well, boy, I sure would like to fly well. Well, to make a long story short, I was getting my college credit, trying to get them, and the war came along. So the, the Air Force relaxed some of their requirements to get in for the pilots, and they had to take a IQ test or some kind of test. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to get accepted in, and I went into Santa Ana Air Base in California, you know. Yep. That's boot camp out there for the Air Force. When about was this? I was in the class of 43K. 43K, okay. But somehow the uh, war was in the early stages, you know what I mean, then. There was lots of confusion, but anyway, we got set back a class for some reason. So I graduated in 44A. Our group was set back, but I was in the uh, West Coast Training Command. 
I went to Dos Palace for primary and uh, went to a little airfield there right out of Bakersfield okay. uh, for basic. And then I went to uh, the P-38 school there in Chandler, Arizona. Okay. I know where that is. Uh, yeah. That's Williams Air Force Base. Yeah, definitely. They were P-38 then. Army Air Corps hadn't accepted them yet. Okay. And they, they were three twenty twos or something like that. I can't remember that. That's right. Yeah, the uh, three twenty two Lightning one and two. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was with a no turbo and no very uh, nine hundred horsepower Allison engine in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's underpowered, if you will. Yeah, it was underpowered. Yeah. Lockheed tried to sell them to our Air Force. Our Air Force wouldn't buy them. I remember that. And for whatever reason, then they sold them to England or to the British. Uh-huh. And they had the engines turned all the same way. So yeah. that increased the torque on it so bad that they lost so many pilots training them. They got killed in training. Yep. So they canceled their contract with Lockheed. And so I, I guess some engineer thought, well, Let's make one pop turn one way and the other turn the other way. And, and it balanced the thing out and it become accepted. You know what I mean? That's it, right. Uh, a good solution. I can't remember the models now, but I think after training in those 322s there at Williams, mm -hmm. we, when I got into well, RTU and that was replacement training pilot. You know what I mean? That's right. At Ontario Army Air Base, Ontario, California. It sounds like you stayed in the western half of the U.S. You had the good weather. Yeah, know, I, I, I was in the West Coast Training Command. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and Ontario Army Air Base, we finished up. And the P-38s were always used in the Far East with Japan. When we got that train leaving L.A., we went up to uh, the West Coast and went up Salt Lake City, and everybody knew that we were going to Portland or Seattle, you know what I mean, or San Francisco yeah. to be shipped out to the Far East. All at once, when we got to Salt Lake City, that train went east in about three or four days, ended up at the docks in New York City and uh, put us on the uh, Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, okay. To ship us to England. Well, that was a big surprise, see, <laughs> uh, where we were going. Yeah. All those P-38s prior to this time have been used down in North Africa. I can't remember the Air Force down there, but I, I, I knew, I mean, the numbers, you know what I mean? The, I yeah, the numbered Air Force. Uh -huh. But anyway, when they was getting ready for this invasion, they moved all those P-38s out of North Africa up to England. Mm -hmm. But when I say all of them, that wasn't but three groups. In the we wasn't in the eighth Air Force. That was a bomber and command, mm -hmm. but they put us in the ninth Air Force, and so we was in the tactical Air Force. Mm -hmm. They call it the ninth, the tactical Air Force. And every Air Force has a mission. The eighth was a bomber Air Force, and we were a tactical Air Force. Our P thirty eights were mostly used for strafing over the continent and on trains and any vehicles on the road trying to catch German troops slipping out of uh, France 
and Spain, getting back to Germany. And that's what we did down on the front lines whenever we had a controller down there, you know what I mean, on the front line. Uh-huh. And the controllers give us missions. Sure. Uh, you know, trying to dive bomb bridges and stuff like that. So that was our mission, the tactical air force on the ground. So I only flew one or two or three escort missions. And the, uh, the ninth air force, we had Marauder B-26s, Martin bombers. That was our bombers, but they were not very good bombers. You know what I mean? <laughs> Consequently, we didn't have very many missions in the air escorting, but everything was on the ground. But whenever you're on the ground, you go over and strafe an airfield, the Germans always had guns up on the ends of every runway. You know what I mean? They're sitting there waiting for you. They're just sitting there waiting for you to come. They ain't got one set of machine guns. They got them. And when you go over in a German airfield, you're getting shot at from every angle. You know what I mean? <laughs> from, from different towers, flak towers. Yep. And it ain't a very safe run running across the German airfield. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there because I don't want to get too far into uh, what I feel like is a pretty good story coming up. Yeah. I'm going to go back a little bit into your history and talk a little about your experience in pilot training and learning to fly to the P-38 and see what that experience was like for you. And you already talked about when and where that was, but you also alluded to the fact that you wanted to fly the P-38. Was there anything else that you also would have wanted to fly if you were given the opportunity? Well, I can tell you something that I didn't want to fly. <laughs> sure, definitely. <laughs> when we were on a, at Dos Palos, that was the primary training command. Okay. Uh, one day, four P-39s come in, and they made us clear the area. You know what I mean? The uh-huh. training planes to let those P-39s come in. And I had always heard that they would tumble. Did you ever hear that expression, tumble? I can't remember why, how they were powered different, their engine, the P-39. Yeah. I knew that uh, I didn't want to fly one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but the P-40, the Zeros in Japan were eating them up. No uh, match for the Zeros. Yeah. But uh, I always fell in love with that P-38 because it was climbing and in all our training, we were trained to fly missions high altitude, yeah. 38,000 or above. And 38,000 was maximum on that, with the oxygen system. Sure. And we were trained for high altitude escort missioning in, in RTU. Yeah. When I went to Europe, we never did fly any altitude hardly. <laughs> That's the rumor on the street. Everything uh, high altitude was uh, maybe not as good a performance as it needed to be, but low altitude, there was nothing that could match it. Well, you had uh, two engines and you had that turbo and there was nothing to climb with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. You being a fighter pilot, you know, at least when I was flying it, if you were going to go into combat with another airplane, having the altitude on that other plane was a much advantage situation. Definitely. The, that adage probably still applies today. And yeah, uh, yeah, at I, least I, in the visual I, arena. On that high altitude, you had to zero in on your target real good, or it was a wasted effort because that high speed 
takes away a lot of your maneuverability whenever you create dives and things like that. But the Germans were real good at that. They'd get their 109s up above those bombers, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. and dive through them and hit an engine and try to get it on fire. And go right on through and go right down and, and land and gas up and come right, right back up and get their guns loaded again. They made several missions a day. You know? That's Yeah, it sounded from all the books and everything and the videos and whatnot that I've watched, and it sounded like a very busy day in the she fighter a, world. If you was a German fighter pilot, you didn't go to some one mission. You, <laughs> <laughs> it was rough. Yeah. When you got into the P-38, it's a little bit different than other fighters in that it has a, a wheel or a, a yoke, depending on what term you want to use. How did you find flying using that as opposed to a stick? I don't recall having any difficulty when we went from an AT-6, you know what I mean, the advanced uh-huh. trainer, going into uh, those uh, 322s. We did have a little time in a dual trainer aircraft, you know what I mean, do a two-seater two instructor in mean, a plane. Yeah, but I never had any trouble with it, and uh, that tricycle landing gear, was no problem, so uh, I just loved that P-38. <laughs> we didn't have all of the good instruments that they have in those airplanes today, fly by and everything. And I can remember we didn't even have a, a what you could call in for a homing. You know what I mean? You couldn't even call in for a homing. Uh, if There's no, like, radio yeah. navigation receiver yeah. kind of thing? Yeah, but I remember when we got to England, we finally got it over there. It would reach out. 90 miles, you know what I mean? You could get a homing. Yeah. So whenever you're over a foreign country, they don't give you any navigational aids, you know what I mean, and tell you where you are and everything. They're not helping you out. They kind of like to take advantage of you. And that was a, one of the greatest things that we ever had was that, what they call it? Like, a non-directional beacon, NDB? Or a, well, anyway, you could call in for a homing a heading. You, you could get home. But whenever you're over the continent and you're looking for targets of opportunity in that area, you can get a long way from where you think you are. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. How did you mission plan for your combat missions for fuel? Like, did you just start a timer and say it's going to burn this much? Or did well, you? It would depend on the length of the mission. If the mission was deep in the Germany, you might have to have two belly tanks to go there and make it back. Okay. The longest mission I was on ever on was five and a half hours. Okay. Now, five and a half hour mission is a long mission in yes, a small it is. cockpit. Nearly all of our missions, we carried a thousand pound bombs. But I remember uh, our group leader always on a P-38 had two shackles under it and mm-hmm. they could carry two one ton bombs. And that was as much as a B-17 could carry. But a B-17 could carry numerous ones, you know, a 1,000-pound or 500-pound bomb. Yes. P-38 could only carry two. Yeah. He only had two shackles. So a P-38 was a pretty versatile airplane. It could carry a lot. It had a lot of power. I can remember when we were in Bournemouth, England, we was on a grass English airfield on the grass pasture and you could go out there and whenever you revved up your engines and check your mags and everything 
you couldn't hold that thing on the ground because it would slip on the dew, you know, on that grass. You had to watch it. Uh, that thing would slip away and slide away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's too much power when you're just doing run-ups. Yeah, on the grass runway, you uh -huh. just couldn't. But Lockheed, can't think what their test pilot name was. He was an Italian. He'd come there once in a while and give a little demonstration, you know, on an airfield to show, uh -huh. show you what the airplane was capable of doing and this yeah. that. He'd run that thing up to 55 manifold pressure, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. I don't know if they didn't have souped-up airplanes, you know what I mean? <laughs> they could really do things to them. Was it uh, Lanier? Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Tony Lanier. That Tony Lanier, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I knew he was in there somewhere. He was a real pilot. <laughs> <laughs> he'd go around, like you said, he'd go around to different bases and kind of put yeah. on a little bit of a demonstration and everything? Oh, yeah. One time I was in an air base at an air show or something, and he come in and over the field, pulled up, feathered both engines, and come in and landed that thing. <laughs> both engines' favorite propellers. <laughs> He's just showing off. <laughs> he just show up because he was good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you were sitting in the cockpit, was it pretty comfortable, or did you feel cramped by it? No, it was very comfortable until uh, one day we flew a mission. It was just two of us went okay. to England. The fog was just terrible, and uh, the instruments weren't good. You know what I mean? Uh, uh -huh. Like they are today. Yeah. We were flying this VIP over to the beachhead. We only, they only had about three spots. And it was in June or early July. I can't remember now the date. The fog was so bad that the other fellow with me, he got separated from the VIP plane, and he, he returned to the base. Well, I dropped my wheels, and I put down a lot of flap to slow my plane down to about 120 or something like that, 20 miles an hour. But I thought oh, that was well the way you could do it, it do those things to slow down. And I got under that brand-new VIP airplane, and we went to – one of those bases on the continent, and that's in France, mm -hmm. we were supposed to return that evening. But he was, of course, I didn't know the VIP's mission, but I later found out, and I asked his pilots there who the VIP was, and they said, well, he's General Smith. Well, that didn't mean nothing to me. I didn't know General <laughs> Smith. You know what I mean? It turned out to be Eisenhower's chief of staff, Belvin Smith. Oh, wow. Uh, his mission was General Montgomery of the uh, British. British Army uh -huh. and Patton were dogfighting over this moving into Germany, you know, out of France and moving yeah. into Germany. The English government was holding up for Montgomery, and they wanted Montgomery to be what Eisenhower was, you know what I mean? Yeah. There was a controversy there over that thing. And anyway, he had to stay all night, but I didn't know who he was. Uh, <laughs> he me. The reason I'm telling you this, I slept in a cockpit of that airplane that night, and it wasn't very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I had to spend the night in that cockpit. This was in France, or where was this? Yeah, it was in northern France. Yeah. Northern well, France. What, is this probably 40, late 44? I'm going to say it would have been in late June or early July. Yeah. Okay. 44. Of 44. We just got over there. 
it's somewhere along there. I can't remember. Yeah. I was going to ask what kind of length of time did you spend training in P38s before you left? How many hours did you have in it? Like before you left California? It seemed like I don't want to give you a wrong hour. No, you're fine. I can't really recall. It seemed like we got 80 hours or something like that. Sure. Or okay. I can't remember. Okay. Obviously, it's a fairly compressed schedule because they need people. They needed people in combat. I mean, uh, the invasion, it was early June, you know, yeah. in 44. On that invasion, it wasn't a, a week or 10 days till they had the first airfield in France. And my group... 430th group was programmed on that first airfield. But okay. it turned out that they put another group on there and we got on, on the third one in France. In France. And, yeah. and they were just bulldozers in those northern France wasteland there. It's kind of open fields. And they just put out a steel mat for the weather. If it rained, you know, them P 38 with bombs on them in their fuel tanks, they'd be bogged down, you know. Sink right in. Yeah, they'd sink right in the ground. <laughs> the cockpit, mostly pretty comfortable while you're flying around, but uh, not too comfortable to sleep in. I'm guessing based on your time of getting into flying P-38s, you're probably flying the J model. Does that sound accurate to you? I was flying the oldest airplane on the field that day, and it was an H model. An H model, an H. okay. But we had... J, K, and L, I think. Okay. Uh, but I remember this. This airplane was the oldest one in the squadron, but it was a good airplane. You know what I mean? It, yeah. It, was, it flew good. And it, it wasn't the aircraft. It was my fault when I thought I was in a clear area uh-huh. uh, out of this all this flak area that I pulled up. And when I pulled up, I pulled up with full throttle. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I was climbing, and when I first saw this anti-aircraft bullet over on my left side, I knew that I was only doing about 180 miles an hour airspeed to the end of my climb, and I was just hoping to get out of the air, and I could see the flak coming up over here on my left, and then I, I look around, and it's still coming up, you know, every fifth bullet on those anti-aircraft guns. Or, Trace or, rounds. They're going to light up, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, I thought, well, sure enough, he's going to rake that line of fire through me. And sure enough, one of them hit that airplane. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is it, the end of the line. When that thing hit, that bullet or flak or whatever it hit, all at once, boy, my cockpit was just full of smoke, you know what I mean, immediately. And yep. right behind the smoke comes the fire. When that high-octane fire comes, you don't move very slow, you know. <laughs> I, I knew I had to bail out, and so I just uh, pulled off my communication deal. We always were neck strap on them back then, you know what I mean? The, the throat yeah. uh, microphone? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Pulled that off and pulled off my oxygen and unbuckled my strap, safety belt, and I just reached up on my right hand and uh, canopy just flops back. See, it pulled back, straight back. And boy, when that wind caught that, that sucked me out of that airplane like a, I can't describe how fast that sucked me out of that cockpit. You didn't have to stand up and kind of do anything in particular to... Oh, no, your... I couldn't wait and do anything I, on account of the fire in yeah. the airplane. I had to go. And I've done about 180 miles an hour. 
I was just hoping to get out of the range of that gun, but I couldn't. He hit me, and uh, I just had to bail out. And I thought, well, a lot of pilots hit that boom, you know, back around on the back of it, uh, the tail part. I thought, well, I'll know. I don't know whenever you were flying, whether they taught you about bailing out. It was 1,001, 1,002, you know, up to 10. Uh-huh. And I did that because I thought, well, I'm up here in 1,005, and I thought that was forever. You know what I mean? I thought, yeah. never would get to 10. <laughs> and I thought, well, by God, I think I missed that damn boom. Then <laughs> I pulled that parachute grip, and, but the German anti-aircraft gun was still shooting at that airplane. You know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't know you'd and left. I they were still shooting at me. And that, <laughs> that <parachute>. <laughs> For your parachute, did you guys put that on before you went out to the airplane, or were they always in the airplane and you kind of put it on once you sat no, down? No, no. We always wore it out to the airplane. Like a backpack. Okay. And then, like you said, you had to do a manual pull to open the parachute and get it to come out. What did they do for training for bailing out for you guys when you knew you had the elevator behind you between the booms that you had to be aware of? I can't recall any special training for that, but I I know when I was at Ontario Army Base, when we were at RTU, uh, one of the nicest guys in the squadron bailed out. And he hit the moon, you know what I mean? And yeah. And it naturally it killed him. Okay. And my friend Hickok, that I told you about earlier, he had to bail out in the LA area there. Okay. And his plane hit a, a military hospital there and killed one or two or three people in that hospital. But he didn't hit the moon. But I always figured they talked about turning the plane upside down. You know what I mean? If you're going to bail out, turn it yeah. out and pull it. There was always a technique, but it was always different, but they still couldn't get around hitting that boom. Yeah, it's still there regardless. But I always figured that I had full power on. You know what I mean? When I was climbing out, uh, trying to get back to my other people in the area, we were supposed to stray from 109 field. Uh But I had full power on and I don't remember, and I don't recall it. I don't think that I ever did pull that power off because the smoke come in and the fire was right behind it. Yeah. And I had to act. And I think, now I'm not a, a aerodynamic engineer or anything, uh-huh. but I think that the contour of that wing, and you know the top side of your, it gives you your left, the contour. When I bailed out that thing, I just feel like those props were doing such hard airstream pulling that it forced me underneath that boom. You don't okay. want to be the strong air current uh-huh. from those props. Now, I don't okay. know if that's possible, but <laughs> I've always figured the good Lord spared me. That's right. Yeah, it's definitely got a checkered pass, the P-38 does, for, yeah, for it, experience it, with bailouts. That aerodynamics over that wing and the power on, I feel like that airstream was so strong then I went under that boom instead of lobbing into it. What was the first memory you had after you realized you were out floating away and, and you were doing your accounting 1001, 1002? What was the first memory you had once you uh, pulled the parachute? I thought the Germans were still shooting at that airplane, but I thought they were shooting at me in that airport. And I thought, <laughs> they're going to kill me anyway. Yeah. I, but my mind was as clear as a bell. I mean, 
I just thought it was the end of the line, and I knew it was the end of my life, and I didn't figure I was going to get out of it. But by golly, it was uh, at the end of the day there, and it was just beginning to get some dark shadows. And, but I landed in a field of vegetation. The vegetation was about two feet high or a foot and a half. Okay. When I hit there, I could see those German army guys on the ground down there running to that area, and I knew I wasn't going to escape. They were coming to that area. I knew that if I jumped up out of that vegetation and tried to run, they'd shoot me for sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because uh, they're all around me. Were you injured at all throughout that whole no, experience? Well, I'll tell you this. They tell you you can take that parachute and you can turn and do this, but those parachutes back then, you, you dropped hard. <laughs> yeah. I was so close to the ground, I was pulling those straps or something, trying to twist. It was, it was a little bit of a breeze, and I landed on my heels backwards and more, and I hit that ground. The back of my head hit that ground. I mean, I hit like a rock. Yeah. <laughs> hard. I wasn't injured. Sure. Yeah, there was no broken bones or, no, no. or anything like that. Well, that's good. We're going to pause this awesome story right there before we get into the next phase of your experience in World War II. And I'm going to come back to the uh, couple of questions back on the airplane with respect to the combat experience. What did you do when you went from New York and you rode the ship across the Atlantic and landed in England? What did you have to do for sort of in-person, in-theater training with respect to the P-38? Well, when we left Ontario Army Air Base there, mm-hmm. in early May, we got over in England. It took about four days to cross on the Queen Elizabeth. Okay. There were so many men on the continent, you know what I mean, preparing yeah. for this invasion. You know you need to keep up your proficiency in flying. They didn't have any planes for us to fly over there. But they finally made arrangements to move us up into Scotland, that northern England there. Yeah. And, and we got to fly one or two times and fly in that area up there and out over the North Sea and around, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was that. kind of local familiarization. Yeah, and- yeah it's a familiar life, what kind of country you was in. But we didn't get much time, not over two trips. But then we were back got assigned to the 430th Fighter Squadron. There were six of us assigned to that unit. I think there was two of them that were men that were already lieutenants in other forces and wanted to get into the Air Force, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they went through the training command. Both of those guys got killed, you know, on the long missions. Yeah. And, uh, and Hickok was the only one that got back and flew his tours, you know what I mean? Yeah. When you went and flew the airplanes in England, were they the same model that you had flown in the States? They were H's, yeah. They were H's there in Ontario Army. I had no problem, but whenever they got in the J's and the K's, I can't remember now whether they had an L or not, but I think they did right at the end. We also had a droop snoop. Did you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that was the one that was kind of a modified to be uh, almost like a bomber. a bomber, right? Yeah. They had a, a navigator, a bombardier, that lay down in that nose, and you could take and load that up with 
each one of them was a couple of thousand pound bombs. And whenever you get over the mission, we did that at a time or two. Okay. Uh, that bombardier navigator would have you in the arm, you know, everything, and you get ready and, and move in close together, you know what I mean? I guess you'd call that pattern bombing, uh-huh. but it was pretty effective. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. And I know when I went through that German interrogation center, that's all they was interested in. They wanted to know about that group snoop. <laughs> <laughs> that one had a Norton bomb sign in it, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Okay, so they basically were taking that P-38 and then the rest of the P-38s and turning them into effectively like a fighter bomber yeah. uh, concept, uh, similar to the B-17 uh, missions. It was always a lot of fun to fly that group snoop because it, it was so much lighter, all them guns out of the, uh, the cannons and the guns out, ammunition up to no, that thing would fly like you couldn't believe it. I got to fly back to England a couple of times, you know okay. what I mean, to yeah. have it serviced or worked on or whatever. Yeah. Boy, that thing was a real pleasure to fly. <laughs> I had heard that for some of the Droop Snoops, they had actually left one or two of the guns in there just for self-protection. Did you see any of those? No, I don't think I ever did see anything. Okay. One day, I can't recall, but it was just before our military surrounded Paris, but they wanted de Gaulle to take Paris, Uh uh, their French general. So somehow they made an exception and let a news photographer or something go on the droops to go on a mission, but he wasn't an Air Force man. And... They took pictures of all this, you know, around Paris and everything, of the French army taking it back. You know what I mean? That group snoop was a a secret thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very highly sought after uh, piece of technology, definitely. Um, You flew 23 combat missions, is that correct? Yeah. Well, I got shot down on my 23rd, but I flew 22 and was shot down on my 23rd. Did you have any bailout experience before no, no. The only bailout experience we had was going down to Long Beach and jumping off like you were jumping off of a, a ship and jumping into the ocean. Into the ocean. I remember those training days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what your first combat sortie was when you were in England? Yeah, I can remember it very well. What was your emotion kind of going well, into that? I'll tell you the truth. I was very excited. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The mission, and this was one of the exceptions, we climbed out to, I think, if I remember right, 22,000 feet. Okay. 
And for, for whatever reason, why they made us fly at 22,000, I don't know, but that's the mission that they put you on. We went to, I think that was Amsterdam. Yeah. Anyway, it was the biggest city in Belgium. Okay. They wanted to bomb and dive bomb. And, and I remember when I went over, as soon as we hit the continent, those big anti-aircraft guns, here they were coming, bang, and you know what I mean? On the, and I realized that I was in combat. You know what I mean? This is, <laughs> no, this is the real this, deal. This is the real thing, and you ain't got no friends over here. <laughs> but anyway, those Germans could really put up that flag. But anyway, when we left there, that marshaling yard there, and that, you know what that is. It's a big transportation terminal for trains and things that thing was on fire and smoke blood and i guess we had pretty good luck because they had some big fires you know what i mean yeah i think they thought it was a successful mission but that was my first mission was bombing die bombing in that big city in belgium but anyway the germans had that occupied you know what i mean they had all that country in control and it was up close to the front, and they were shipping supplies up the front as hard as they could to meet this invasion that they knew was coming. That was our mission. See, that's the tactical Air Force was to prevent them to get supplies up to the front and yeah. everything. That's right. And we strafed and dive bombed and did all that stuff. Yeah. And did another thing. They flew into Germany more. Okay. During your strafing runs, one of the listeners had asked about the compressibility problems that the P-38 experienced and in those high-speed dives and whatnot. Yeah. And, and you said you flew the H model. Did you ever fly any of the converted H models with the dive brakes? Oh, yeah. We had a dive flap. You call them dive brakes. We call them yeah. dive flaps. Dive flaps, yeah. Did you have to use those for those kind of dive bomb missions? No, we didn't use them on that. No, okay. they were really... For use for us, if we got into combat with other airplanes, it's tight turning. You okay. can make a tighter turn, and you take the Spitfire and the 109, they could tight turn. And that P-38, it helps to make a tighter turn in, if you was in combat. But if you was going over, I think it was 220 or 240 miles an hour, that dive flap would tear off. You know, the pressure oh, wow. would be so hard in the tight turn. You oh, know wow. what it is to get in a tight turn. You can black out, you know, yeah. what I mean? blood oh. pressure. But those dive flaps were good for this tight turn, really. Yeah. They were no good uh, for as far as dive bombing or anything. They Not necessary. We wouldn't necessary. Did you have any experience in air-to-air combat? Did you see any other fighters or shoot down any other planes or anything like that? The only time we were escorting some B-26 bombers, Mm -hmm. and we were pretty well down in France, we had belly tanks. We were so far from fuel. Yeah, long-range mission. And, And you ran your belly tanks till you ran them dry. You used up everything, and then you switched over your transfer gasoline from here to there. Yeah. Well, I had run one of my belly tanks out and that makes you fall back. You know what I mean? It slows you down whenever you're going into one engine for a few minutes. It made me fall back and two 109s, we was 
oh, I don't know, 12,000 feet or something like that. Okay. And 2109 dropped out of the cloud right in the front of me. And it, if I would have, could have just got my fuel on and had the power, I could have got both of them. But oh, man. It would have been the biggest victory in the world for a fighter pilot. But those 2109s went right back up into the cloud. And, of course, you can't see nothing up in the clouds. Yeah. By the time I got my gas back and my speed up again, they was gone. They were gone. And that was the only time that I was close to a 109, you know Any, what I mean? Enemy aircraft, yeah. What I'll say is that you scared them off. The Germans were bad. They didn't usually put out two airplanes like that. Their tactic was to fly in mass numbers, big numbers. Yeah. Whenever their fighters went out, they might have 40, 50, or 60 of them out there. Definitely. And whenever they called a squadron out there, they tried to wipe them out. Mass their firepower. They worked on big numbers. But I remember the Germans were far superior at the first part of the war. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But old Goring... He made a mistake of thinking how superior they were to the Allied forces. Allied forces, yeah. Obviously, history is able to look back and look at the uh, strategic decisions that he made, but yeah, yeah, no, it it definitely didn't turn out well for them. I don't think Hitler was very popular. I mean, he wasn't very popular with Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in a situation like that, since they did show up right off your nose, but had you been in a position to fire, what was the for aerial employment? What did you have to do to deploy the gun? We had a formation that we flew, and it was spacing. When we would fly, we would be spaced out this way and that. But the spacing was such length that you could turn in to your friendly forces. You know what I mean? You could into turn into your forces. The other wingman on the other side could turn in, and that was the main thing. But have your neck on a, a swivel looking behind you for getting attacked that way. But if you, you met them straight on, you had to be prepared to make these tight turns. Then you learn sure that they didn't attack you and you didn't attack them if they didn't, uh, one of you didn't have the altitude on the other one. Yeah. Having the altitude made you much more aggressive. You had an advantage. Yeah. For firing the guns, since there were multiple guns in the nose, I know there were a couple fifty caliber and a About variety five. of configurations, right? There was five fifty calibers and one twenty millimeter cannon in the all Yeah, a few different configurations as time changed and whatnot with the. With well, the they might have. Yeah. Did you guys only have one either electronic button or trigger, or did you guys have multiple for the guns, or how did you, no, how did you guys employ no, the guns? No, just one trigger, and you get that gun sight and you get that point on them, you're not slipping or sliding, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Then you're effective, but you always were strafing and you were always prone to fire your guns too soon. You know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. But that come with training. You had to stick the nose of that airplane right into that target to be effective. In the F-16, we'd always call that the ground rush effect, if you will, where you see the ground coming up at you and you think you're closer than you are and you shoot and the bullets aren't effective because you're too far away. I remember Colonel Darling. He was a light colonel and he led the group an awful lot, but he was one of the best in the Air Force of 
aerial targets, you know, uh, would shoot bullets into uh, tow targets. Yeah. He was one of the best at that. He was one of ours, and he was a tiger. <laughs> he was aggressive. But you always had to remember to not get target fixation and fly into the ground. That's right. Now, I think several of our people did get target fixation and did fly in the ground and kill themselves. And, yep. You know what I mean? Yep. But I can't swear to that because I just think that happened. I think the adage of the ground has a probability of kill of 100% or a 1, it's going to win regardless of how good a pilot you are. No, we strafed those troops, the German troops, would pull up in those forests, you know, over in France and hide in there. Sometimes once in a while, some of us would come home with some tree limbs, you know what I mean? <laughs> They're uh, flying pretty low. Yeah, and I think sometimes you get shot down the plane, got target fixation and flew in and killed himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was always trying to be conscious of that. Yeah. And they yeah. warned us about that all the time. It's a big deal. You definitely have to take a step back there and, and make sure you're paying attention to the world around you. Yeah. yeah. For some of the bombers, there were stories that their guns would freeze, literally freeze because of you know shooting and the condensation. They would actually ice up. Did you guys have any of that kind of issue with yours at all? I don't remember. I was flying over there in uh, May, June, July, and it, I think it was September the 12th when I got shot down. So okay. the weather conditions were good all the time over there. Okay. The only real problem we had there in England was fog. Oh, yeah. But we did have some bad rainstorms there in France mm-hmm. but that we couldn't fly. Usually we had a morning mission and an afternoon mission. But whenever you fly a longer mission, those planes are gone longer, see? Yeah. And then when they come back, they got to be refueled. Mm-hmm. And they've got to be all their ammunition got to be loaded. Yeah. And if you got bombs, you got a dive bomb. You've got a dive bomb. Mission. You got to load those bombs. And between the trips on the missions, you can't fly over two missions. Yeah. Now, just before I got shot down, they informed us that we were going to be flying night missions. And I remember when the first Germans got their first jets. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in July. I can remember that. It was in July. And our intelligence instructed us that we were to stay in communications with them as the best we could and fly to we run out of gas or whatever to follow those German jets. To follow the jets uh, to find out where they were. It was a new war weapon, you know. Yeah. They wanted information, but I remember very distinctly that we was instructed, it didn't matter what it was, to abort whatever we was doing on the mission, try to follow those jets. Yeah. Did you ever see any? The first one I ever saw was one of them flew over my German prison camp one day. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, in North Germany, in North Germany. It was a yeah. German jet, but that was the first one I'd ever saw or ever seen. And I couldn't believe it. You know? yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that was definitely a sight. Yeah, well, it was new equipment like that. And you only just read about it or heard about it or something. Yeah. It was interesting. Well, so let's just jump into that. So we covered your bailout. 
and you, you know, descending to the earth and hitting the back of your head and everything. And, and then uh, you said you were getting surrounded by the ground forces. So what was that exchange like with the Germans when they first got to you? Well, I was laying on the ground there in that foliage. The German army guys were all around me within 50 feet of me. Mm-hmm. And I think he was what they call a warmont. Uh, you know what I mean? That's the army, German army. Yes. Vermont or what do you call it? Yeah. Uh, he had his pistol. And he had his first sergeant, had his rifle. They come right up on me. Well, of course, I think he said, Ralph's. Well, that's about the only thing I knew in German was get up. You know? <laughs> I got up and then those other German soldiers just surrounded me and stripped me of everything that I had. You know what I mean? My watch. Yeah. My insignia and everything, you know what I mean, for souvenirs. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yeah. This German captain, he uh, had a little old bitty car, a little, uh, I mean, it was a tiny car. He took me to this little old village. It was a jail, you know, and I was in that. And then they moved me the next day to another little jail, getting me a little closer to a, uh, a military unit where they could turn me over to the main army, you know what I mean, or the flop. It took me about five days to a week, you know, to get to. And I think, well, it was right there by Dusseldorf, a uh, city next to Dusseldorf. I can't think of the name of it. That's where I first really got into the hands of the Luftwaffe, you know what I mean? But I always had two German guards there. I was in little old bad jails there, and, and one of them, they had two of us, a guy that was captain, but I was just a lieutenant then. Okay. But he didn't speak to me, and I didn't speak to him, you know, because you don't know who you're dealing with. And yeah. that's part of your training, you know what I mean? They did give you training, if you will, about being captured and what you were supposed to say or not supposed to say? That kind of oh, thing. yeah. They sent me down to southern Germany, and it took two or three days on the trains to get down there. You know what I mean? The, the trains were mostly tied up with military stuff, and yes. there wasn't much uh, civilian activity. Okay. I got down there in that interrogation center, this big interrogation officer, come in. He was about six foot five and he was a big fancy, you know, looked real great in his uniform. <laughs> he began to ask me questions and I always remember his rank and your name and your serial number. You know what I mean? All That's the all basics. Give them. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, your airplane is burned out that you were flying. Mm-hmm. And he said, they had no record of you not being in that crash. And he said, now, I can have you killed, and there ain't going to be no repercussions on the Germans at all. You know yeah. what I mean? He yeah. let me know that he was in a power position. <laughs> I, but I never did tell him anything. But mm-hmm. the only thing that he was interested in was that droop snoot, you know, that I told you about earlier. Yeah. Want more information about that. But anyway, I was there only about two days uh, to go from southern Germany to northern Germany. Uh, that was Stalag Luft 1, the prison camp. Mm-hmm. I went through some of the big cities on those trains, and it was unbelievable how destroyed they were. You know what I mean? The Germans, I don't know how the German people put up with it. Oh, I know. Uh, I know. And then surrender a lot sooner. 
at least the Japanese, whenever they dropped the AIDS mom on them, they surrendered. They want to have any more de- yeah. destruction, you know what I mean? Yes. Going through Berlin, and bulldozers had to clean the middle of the streets out from the debris that from all those buildings crushed and killed and the bricks in the street. You know what I mean? I don't know how the people lived. Oh, I know. The pictures and, and everything are incredible, and I can't imagine being the, there in person. The people, and unfortunately, in our country, don't know what war is all about. Don't know what war is all about. That's exactly right. The firsthand experience always uh, provides a lot more color and, and, oh, yeah. uh, and whatnot oh, yeah. than seeing it uh, on a TV screen. Whenever uh, you're living in those conditions, you know what war is all about and hunger is all about. Oh, yeah. So during your time as a PW, what, was it about nine months? I yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your experience like when it came to treatment? What kind of food did they give you? Did they yeah. treat you pretty well? Yeah. Didn't abuse it, I'll put it that way. Okay. But it was the lack of food. You know what I mean? Our government supported the Red Cross and giving us food. We call it food packing. And okay. they would send it to Germany but it would end up in the German black market, and we didn't get it. Oh. You see, it was well-intended, and our government was trying to take care of their troops, yeah. but the Germans didn't distribute it to us like they should, and yeah. that was the bad part. Now, as far as being abused or anything, I know one day, I uh, don't know whether you even were interested in this, but we had a fellow that was from New York, and he was what they call a block trader. He had special privileges under the Geneva Convention that he could do certain things. It's kind of like being a a union boss. You know what I mean? He got certain privileges. You can't fire him. You can't do this. (laughs) uh, He had a certain right. You know what I mean? Uh This guy had this, and we would see him about once a month. He would come and ask us how we were doing and this and that. But for some reason... The Germans wanted him eliminated. Oh, no. But anyway, he came to my barracks, and I remember talking to him in the room, and I went out to the, with him to the front door of this barracks, and only once the German guard shot him right through the head. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I shot him right through the head, and I'm standing... Right next I, to him. I'm, I'm not two feet from him. You know what I mean? Oh, my oh, gosh. The German guard shot him from about 150 yards, but he was a real marksman. He killed this guy, and they had a big trial about it after the war, and they had all of my witnessing, you know what Your I mean? Testimony. Yeah, and definitions. the commandant of that German camp wanted him eliminated, and they faked him. They said there was an air raid. And oh. if you didn't get off of the field when an air raid come, when they ring uh, that siren, you better get in your barracks or you're going to get shot. And I mean, they had a zero tolerance for horseplay or anything like that. Yeah. They didn't allow that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they want this guy exterminated. I've got a whole pages of that trial and all of this and after the war was over. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It was a long time. And don't think that they wouldn't shoot you. Oh, I guess. Yeah, seriously. My goodness. Like we uh, discussed, you did about nine months as a POW. And then how was it that you were released or recovered? Well, see, I'm up on the Baltic Sea. 
that's Barth, Germany, that's uh-huh. 200 miles straight north of Berlin. Okay. We could hear the Russian guns uh-huh. about a week before they got to our camp. But they finally got there, and that night, the Germans all left their towers, and they went into hiding themselves. Okay. And the Russians, well, freed us, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And we were told that if you wanted to try to go ahead and get back to the Allied forces, you could go. We're going to hold you. But okay. I thought, well, I'm not going to... I'm, I'm still here, and I've been over here nine months in this prison camp, and I'm not going to get into no booby traps or anything <laughs> like that. You know yeah. what I mean? Anything. Yeah. And I'll just wait till it, and I'm going to say that 99% of them just waited. Just waited. Until the Eisenhower sent B-17s in, and they had planks in the Bombay's. Okay. And we didn't have parachutes. They flew us out of there to Reims. France, that was Eisenhower's headquarters. But the Russians there, they freed us, and they said, well, what do you want? They said, well, we need something to eat worse than anything. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have any fat man in there in that <laughs> prison camp, I'll tell you. Nobody had uh, obesity. <laughs> so what you're saying is being a PW then is jokingly a good diet. Yeah, it's a good diet. Okay, okay. Uh, you don't have any weight issues. Uh, yeah. These yeah. men and women that have uh, can't do that, but mm-hmm. what they're really doing is lifting up something to their mouth all the time. That's right. You didn't have that to lift. Yeah. That's, that's the problem. Right. Anyway, we got into Reims, France. I just couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? We got freed, and within a week, they got us up to uh, what they call Camp Lucky Strike. I've never heard of it. But it was a debarkation from, from military men in Europe Okay, come back to the States. I got on to a uh, ship called the General Butler. It was a troop ship, you know, I mean, cargo ship mm-hmm. to carry us home. And it took, uh, oh, five or six days. I don't know what to cross or something like that, seven. Yeah. It's much slower than the Queen of Elizabeth. <laughs> 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 uh, it was a nice experience. It was a kind of a good ending to a, a bad story about being a prisoner of war. You know what I mean? No, for sure. Your shoot down was your last flight in a P-38. Is that correct? That's right. It was my last flight in the P-38. Okay. But then I went out and I don't know where you know where Tinker Field is. Uh-huh. I was in the reserve unit there and then. I used to fly on the weekend, but we usually, a B-26 was the, the biggest airplane we had in that reserve unit. You know what I mean? Yes. It was a twin-engine plane. It was a glorified A-20, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh, in North Africa, yes. they used in a, a A-20. But after the Air Force took over in 1946 from the Army Air Corps, mm-hmm. they redesignated them, and it was a B-26. And I was, had some little time in it. I flew in and off uh, on the weekends quite a bit. I got called in then. I think it was in early June of 1950 to Korea. And that that was kind of a funny thing. 
I flew 22 missions or night missions over in Korea. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I flew 22 over in Europe, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I flew that B26 over there. Oh, very but, good. We haven't talked about the B26 on our show, so maybe we'll have to get you back and uh, get some experience on what you're Oh, you're, uh, oh I love that B26. I love the P38 too, you know what I mean? But one of them had an inline engine and the other one had a radial engine. The uh -huh. only thing about that B26, it was loud, noisy, and cold, boy. <laughs> <laughs> the heating system on it was terrible. You're saying that, that you like the B26 more or the P38? Which, well, which would you say? Oh, I'm going to tell you, whenever you get used to a plane and, and, and you on your F-16, that's probably your favorite. I, oh, yeah. I don't know. But I, I love them both. <laughs> okay, that's fine. That B-26, my instrument training and everything, and we flew in fog and everything, and snow or anything, and we would make instrument takeoffs and instrument landing every time, and every mission. So, yeah. But when you got where you felt real confident, it was a real comfort to feel like he was in a good airplane. Yeah, that's awesome. And that B-26 was a good airplane. Marshall, this has been amazing stuff. I really appreciate you spending the time with us here today to well, talk I, about everything. I don't know whether I told you anything that you won't hear, but anyway, that's, that's kind of my story. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, I think everybody's going to love this, and I don't think anybody's going to complain when they get to hear amazing firsthand stories from guys that were there and, and the ones that were living through what is clearly a monumental event in human history. And to have, you know, that firsthand knowledge and experience right straight from the sources is, is, I think, something everybody looks for when they get to talk about things that they care about. So I, I well, do appreciate everything. This has been amazing. You, you uh, me and a, a jet fighter pilot, you know all this stuff and more than I do about it. But uh, <laughs> it's good. I'll tell you one more story here. Yeah. They sent a, what was that general? It was the, over the Strategic Air Command in Nebraska there, Omaha. Uh, May. They sent their contingency down to interview us, you know, and whenever he interviewed me, he said, we're going to send you uh, to uh, jet fighter school down in Texas. Uh, and I was just uh, walking on the clouds. <laughs> I was so happy that I was finally get to get in the jets. Yeah. And when the orders come a week later, they sent me to a bomber group <laughs> in El Paso, and that let all the air out of me. <laughs> what I a always, rude awakening. I always wanted to get in that jet because when I was over in Korea, my former outfit, the 430th, was over there, on, shared that airfield over there oh, in wow. Korea. And we had a Marine squadron there, and we had our third bomb group. I was in the third bomb group over there. Uh -huh. And that 430 fighter squadron was over there and they flew jets in the daytime and we flew all the night missions. <laughs> uh, in other words, we kept the Northern Korea. Well, really it was the Chinese, you know, we yeah. were really fighting Chinese, but we kept them busy. <laughs> that's, wow. That's amazing. How long did you serve total from when you enlisted all the way through at the end of your time? 11 years of 11 years. service. I wanted to stay in the Air Force, but my wife didn't like that TDY being gone all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So I, I'm sure I, not... I kind of took a vow when I got married, and I thought, well, I just would uh, 
make things right. I'll just get out of the Air Force. I think the country can understand. What was amazing about that, the Berlin Airlift come right after the Korean will. And my wife told me, I told you so, you'd be gone again. <laughs> that reserve outfit went to the Berlin Airlift. <laughs> so oh my I guess she, she was the winner. Well, very well. That's been some great stuff. Is there anything that you can think of that uh, maybe the listeners would want to know about the P-38 that uh, we haven't already talked about that you thought would be important? Oh, I can't think of anything, but I, I remember 38,000 feet was what they call the ceiling on it. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Yep. Because of the oxygen, you know what I mean? The, the, the oxygen the system. Oxygen system. Yeah. And I know that one time the flight leader out in, when I was in RTU, we were going to try to get up to 40,000. And we did. We got up to 40,000, but we were just motioning around. You couldn't do nothing. There was no maneuverability or yeah. nothing. But yeah. It took all the zap out of that P-38, <laughs> 40,000. I remember doing that. That's all. That's I great. Think I never did have a single engine problem, but a lot of people did come back on single engines and single yeah. engines saved their lives. You know what I mean? It's Definitely. A single engine. I had a chance one time. The 8th Air Force was losing so many bombers to the Germans they wanted P-38 pilots to transfer over to uh, P-51s. Okay. You know what I mean? To transfer in there to, on escort mission. I thought about that, and I thought, well, they'll probably just give me one hour in the training, you know what I mean, in that P-51, yeah. and I'll be in over there and, and escorting those bombers. I just better stay with P-38. <laughs> anyway, I could have transferred to P-51s, yeah. but a P-51 at that time didn't have that British engine Merlin, in it. The Merlin you know, engine in it. At the end of the war, it was one of the best, you know, fighter planes. Yeah. That's the way the ball bounced, you know what I mean? I didn't right. transfer. But I had a friend that did transfer, and sure enough, he got shot out. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> And he was from Oklahoma City, too. I, oh I, I knew him very well. Oh, my goodness. But he didn't get killed. He got home. Well, that's got great. killed in a car wreck later. Going yeah. through all of that and then to come back <laughs> and get killed in a car wreck. That's, yeah. I don't know, that's rough. Yeah. We like to end our show with uh, asking about call signs or nicknames that uh, you might have had bestowed upon you in some form or fashion. Do you, do you have anything like that? No, I, I don't have anything like that. That's fine. Yeah, I know it's kind of maybe more of a recent thing in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, maybe 40 years, something like that within typically within the Air Force, a little bit in the Navy as well and, and whatnot. But don't worry if you don't have one. It's it's definitely not a uh, no, I don't have nothing like that. It, it's probably more of a good thing than anything. It probably means you didn't do something stupid. So it's probably the, the, <laughs> well, the right way to take that. I, I think the only stupid thing that I didn't stay in the Air Force. And get to retired from it, but I might have been pushing up Daisy too uh, <laughs> later somewhere. Well, considering you're a two war veteran, if you will, from both World War II and Korea, and all the uh, Cold War stuff that was there to follow, I'm sure you know, like you mentioned with the Berlin Airlift and everything else, the likelihood of being involved in something, as we like to say, is pretty high when it comes to risk and uh, incidents within the military aviation community. So, probably a good thing, and, and I'm sure your wife appreciates it as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> she's passed on, but that, that's part of it. But I'm crowding the 99 now, 98 and a half. We've been trying to get this interview for about a half a year almost now at this point, and, and I do appreciate your time with us, and I'm so glad I was able to, to get to speak with you finally. And I wish it was in person, but obviously all this uh, COVID stuff going on, I don't want to make a risk uh, unnecessarily for something like that. So at least we were able to do this on Zoom and, and get to talk today. Yeah, all right. I appreciate it, your request. And uh, I don't know whether it's in any value, but uh, if it is, why use it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know there's a lot of great history out there and, and it's good yeah. to capture as many uh, real life experiences yeah. as possible. But for the listeners out there, this is going to to wrap up our first on the uh, Warbird episodes here on the podcast. But don't you worry, I've got more in the queue. We've got a few coming up here in the next few months. And I look forward to uh, hearing the reactions and, and whatnot from this episode and what we have in the future. So uh, for Marshall, this is Boat signing off from the P38 episode. And we'll uh, see you guys in the next time. Well, welcome back, everyone. My thanks again to Captain Hannah for taking the time to recount his time in the P-38 and the experiences he had. And man, what an amazing experience it must have been to fly that thing in real life, real combat, all that good stuff, because it was amazing to get to speak with him about it and learn what that amazing machine was capable of and frankly, what it was like through his eyes to go fly in combat. And it's just incredible to me to think that all those guys in the past learned how to fly that airplane so quickly in so few hours. And granted, it's maybe not the most technologically advanced thing, especially when you compare it to some of the fourth or fifth gen aircraft that we're flying today. But they're basically just thrown into flying that aircraft directly into combat after maybe 10, 15 hours of total flight time. Some guys get more, some guys get less. But I mean, good Lord, you look at it now and we're sitting there out of basic F-16 training for me. And I had about 110 flight hours plus a whole bunch of simulators, a whole bunch of ground training. And then that's all before I got to my first duty assignment. And that was over the course of about, I don't know, maybe nine months. And now I get to my first duty assignment and I go through mission qualification training, which is another maybe four or five, six months, another 30 hours or so, 40 hours maybe. And so I'm hitting the mission qualified status at around 150 hours, like 10 to 15 times as many hours as these guys going into actual combat. I cannot imagine what their nerves must have been that first time they'd take it airborne, knowing they're going into combat, into enemy territory, looking for targets to go shoot at. Like It's just insane. And now you add all of that in with the concept of, well, people don't want you to go shoot their stuff down, and they may want to capture you. And as Marshall described, he became a POW. And that part was really fascinating to me as well, because it just seemed like such a non-event almost. And I know it clearly wasn't, but... My goodness, it was just very interesting the way he described it and very interesting the way the Germans divvied up their POWs between the ground and the air forces and how protective of them they were, you know, the SS going after the ground personnel and being responsible for them and and trying to take Air Force pilots and the, the Luftwaffe coming in and grabbing them to make sure that they weren't treated poorly or, or whatever the case may be. So, I mean, really just a fascinating look at a little bit of the history of World War II, a little bit more behind the scenes than I was ever privy to previously. And I really had a great time with it. And I hope everybody else did as well. My thanks again to Captain Hannah for sitting down with me and chatting about it. And we look forward to doing much more of this in the future. But like I said, these are going to be a little bit longer episodes as we uh, get longer interviews because we're trying to focus on the story. So I'll start to wrap it up today. And I just wanted to thank all of our listeners as well. Everybody that subscribes to the show, man, we love you guys. We love your feedback. And so any ratings or reviews you guys can pass on to us 
are greatly appreciated. We take all that feedback, good, bad, or otherwise, and we try to improve the show for the future. So please do keep that coming. As always, just a reminder that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. And that will do it for us for today for our first entry into the Warbird series. Man, what a great time I've had and I hope everybody else is as well. And we've got a ton of great stuff lined up for the future. So please do stay tuned and we look forward to spreading the good word on the Warbirds going forward. We will see you next time for the next installment of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So until then, get high, get fast, and do some good work. We'll see you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.